Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every episode, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited to welcome onto the show Jennifer Jordan. She is a professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, but more importantly, she has done an extraordinary amount of research of the sociology of beer and brewing, and more specifically, she has done some very exciting research on hop agriculture. Um, so before we dive into that, first and foremost, uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So again, before we dive into your research, uh, could you take the listeners a little bit through your background and kind of how you got into this uh, wonderful world of uh, beer research? <laughs> sure, sure. So I've been a professor of sociology and also urban studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for 23 years, I think. Um, and in that time um, have done, you know, I would say three major different projects, sort of different areas of research with smaller sub projects in between. Um, and the thread that runs through all of it is this connection between memory, landscape uh, and the material world. And I study that in very different places. So my first book, was about memory and violence in the urban landscape in Berlin after the fall of the wall. And then my last book was called Edible Memory. That was about heirloom tomatoes and antique apples and how the meanings of things like fruits and vegetables have consequences for their biodiversity. And you know the stories that we tell about them also affect um, the kinds of places that they grow in and are consumed in. And then when I finished that book, I started thinking about my next step and um, started thinking about beer, started thinking about craft beer and through, you know, not to yada, 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 but through a <laughs> series of literature reviews, basically reading what other people had done, realizing, okay, this is the ground that's been covered. This is ground that ha hasn't been covered over here. I started to get really interested in, in hops in particular, and then in places where hops used to grow, but don't grow anymore. Um, so that was a huge surprise to me was to read Unger's book on beer and brewing in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and to see him describe hop fields near the Baltic. Uh, so I'd always thought of hops only in Southern Germany and here they were growing that far North, that close to the sea. And so then I started to look for other places where tops had once grown, but then had disappeared. And so this landed you in the Midwest, specifically, eventually, <laughs> eventually specifically in Wisconsin. Correct. Um, the My book proposal uh, covers about a thousand years of hop history and many different countries. The manuscript that I'm hoping to deliver this year is going to end up covering mostly one county in Wisconsin and a period from about 1837 to 1872. 
So <laughs> things changed. And part of why the scope of the project changed so much is because I ended up finding just a real treasure trove of archival material in Wisconsin. Okay. So first I want to back up a little bit. Sure. What fascinated you about specifically areas where hops used to exist? Like there, I would imagine there would be so much research on and, and so much rich information on, you know, hop areas that are thriving, but why is it like, the former that excites you? I I mean, the, the other thread in all of my work is about forgetting um, and erasure. And so, of course, it's really hard to study things that are forgotten and things that are <laughs> erased. Um, but I find that really powerful and I find it really intriguing. And I think that the study of agricultural failure is really essential. I think that, um, you know, there's there is a lot of study on successes, as you say, and a lot of material and a lot of kind of richness out there. But failure is also really crucial for understanding not only where we've come from, but also where we're headed. And, you know, understanding that the current agricultural environment that we inhabit is temporary uh, and that wherever it's headed next, you know, humans may have some control over that, may have less control over some aspects of it. And Tastes change, technologies change, temperatures change. And so, you know, not to, to be a cliche, but but change mm -hmm. is really the only constant there. Um, and so I think just realizing how temporary the current arrangement is, um, is, is important. And one way to do that is to look at how these really robust industries just com went completely belly up like totally failed at various points in the past. Yeah. Can you, can you share maybe a, a snippet of your favorite example of that where, where it just fell apart um, for, for maybe an interesting reason? Sure. I mean, it's the story at the heart of my book is this story of, of sort of an incredible boom and then a, a bust, like almost overnight crash in the yeah. hop market in Wisconsin in the 1860s. And it happens, you know, I mean, part of what I'm doing is really trying to understand where the hops were even growing in Wisconsin on a pretty granular, like field by field level. And, and so I have a, a really good sense of that because I have a database of about 3000 heading toward 4000 hop farmers from this time period. Oh, so, wow. yeah. <laughs> it's, Wait, so you went back, sorry, I'm fascinated by this. So you went back and like got farm records for um, for hop farmers from that time frame. Correct. I spend an enormous amount of time in the fourth floor archive at the Wisconsin Historical Society over in Madison, which oh. is about an hour and a half west of here. And the sense the Wisconsin agricultural census unfortunately has not been digitized. So hmm. I have to go through page by page and look for hop farmers. And there, so there's a column in the census in 1850, 1860, 1870, recording hop harvests. Uh, and so using that, I can find the name of the farmer. And then a big part of the story is actually the work of women in hop cultivation 
And so then I go look for their wives uh, because almost every single hop farmer has someone in their household that is an inferred spouse in that these census records, but okay. I can only find them in the population census. They're not listed in the agricultural census. And sorry, why are you looking for the spouses? Because it turns out that in the 19th century in the US, you cannot have beer without hops and you cannot have hops without women. So in New York state, which at the time was really the dominant hop producing area, uh, women do most of the picking uh, and then they also host the hop pickers. And Wisconsin follows a similar uh, similar path that they use mostly young white women as the pickers. And then those hop pickers stay at the house of the farmer. And so the, the wife and then older daughters uh, have to spend a huge amount of time baking, cooking, cleaning to get ready for the hop pickers, setting up bedsteads, you know, doing all of this work of essentially running an inn um, for a couple of weeks during the harvest. Um, and so that, you know, any hop farmer, the success of that farm is really also dependent on the work of women, um, both in his family and then in his employ. And why did women have to do the hop picking or why were they favored for the hop picking? Well, that's a fine question about which there is some debate. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, there are sort of anecdotally, people like to say that it had something to do with the phytoestrogens, that men didn't want to be around that much hops um, and that it was okay for women to do it, that picking, but not men. I I haven't seen, you know, rock solid evidence of that. Um, it, it doesn't mean that that's not an argument, but I just haven't seen the evidence. To me, it seems like these were women, these were people who could be spared from the farm at the time, um, you know, from other farms. So with, um, sometimes pickers come from nearby. Sometimes they come from a little farther away. The family that's kind of at the heart of my book, I know that they were uh, bringing pickers in from counties to the north uh, where hops weren't growing. So mm -hmm. the labor force, you know, the harvest up there didn't need their labor. Uh, and so they could go make some money. There's often, you know, hop picking sometimes is terrible and deadly um, in, you know, in California, in England at times and other places, uh, even to this day, um, you know, it, it comes with some risks, but it also sometimes had a reputation for being kind of a working vacation. I mean, that's certainly the story like in Kent um, with people leaving sooty London um, for two weeks to go pick hops in the countryside um, and get some fresh air, but also make some money. In Wisconsin, there is also, there seems to be, you know, some matchmaking going on, some, you know, young woman hop pickers like being exposed to a different marriage market than, than their little town um, that they're in somewhere in Wisconsin. So, I, you know, my hunch is that there's some, there's a kind of economic reason for it, that, that these, these hands could be spared at that particular moment um, mm -hmm. in the agricultural year. 
I'm I have this like idyllic vision of like you know some some poor woman just being like oh I need to need to get away and do a hot vacation and right <laughs> that sounds so lovely I would do a hot vacation that sounds amazing <laughs> um, yeah there are sort of anecdotes too of them like you know just flirting with the there's always a man there to lift the hot pole and then like set it across a couple of barrels or something so that they could pick the hops off the hot pole. And then, you know, one woman's memoirs of the day, like she recalled stuffing the, the pole man into a hop sack, you know, just to, to be funny, like all the girls ganging up on him and stuffing him in a hop sack. So <laughs> I, I don't know if he then married one of them or not. I'm not sure how that particular flirtation turned out. <laughs> amazing and then the women also like of the farmer you said would need to do hosting yeah yeah and so they, oh sorry good no is it what would that kind of typically you said that'd be a lot of baking and kind of like kind of like running an inn basically right and of course they weren't really set up for it so there are definitely accounts of um hot picker or hop farmers wives having to borrow like a lot of dishes and linens from neighbors and sometimes that could be tricky because one thing I really see in the agricultural census is clusters of people growing hops. So if your if your neighbor's growing hops, then you might get kind of interested in growing hops too. So I definitely find hop growers grouped together um, in the census. So it's possible that all your neighbors are also preparing for an onslaught of pickers. Um, but still, it seems like people could find neighbors to borrow things from. Um, and then this diary that I have of a hop picker, um, she describes in a lot of detail, you know, how much ironing they do and sweeping and, you know, shaking out of carpets and then putting up all these bedsteads and stuffing straw ticks to get ready. And then when the hop pickers finally leave, she definitely expresses a sense of relief. She says, like, we can breathe easier now. Oh, Wow. And, and so during this time in Wisconsin, there was this big boom and it sounded like it was like kind of really aggressive for a minute there. And then what happened suddenly that made it stop? I, it was sort of three factors. Um, so yeah, in the 1860s, uh, Civil War era, and then just after, just a gigantic ramping up of hop production in Wisconsin. Um, and, and it's really visible in the archival record. You can see this mm -hmm. change. And that's part of what fascinates me, right? Hops, these particular hops that were growing probably cluster, not, you know, indigenous to Wisconsin. So it's also this radical mm -hmm. transformation of the landscape that you take what had been you know, oak savanna and very much Ho-Chunk and, and Potawatomi um, and Menominee and Sauk land and much of it's first in wheat. And then when the wheat starts to fail, they turn to hops and tobacco and sugar beets and other, you know, hopefully for the farmers, lucrative crops. Um, so hops are just one of those, but it is a huge change um, to the landscape. So all of these hops start being grown in the 1860s. All these farmers start growing them, some with some talent and experience, some with very little experience. And so the failure comes 
Well, the, the boom comes when New York state has a blight. Oh, so suddenly a huge quantity of New York state hops basically go offline. And so okay. all these brewers, and, and that can happen very quickly, right? That it's not like you don't see in the distance, oh, there might be a blight coming. It's like you wake up one day and your hop field is destroyed. Um, sometimes it can come on more slowly than that, but it can, it can happen pretty quickly. Uh, and so all of a sudden, all these hops that people were expecting didn't show up in the marketplace. Uh, and so here's Wisconsin with this growing harvest. And so suddenly the prices skyrocket for Wisconsin hops um, to fill this void left by New York State. Then the next year, the blight's over, New York State comes back online. Meanwhile, Wisconsin has planted even more hops. Um, so first they're kind of booted back out of the market by New York. Then they just massively overproduce in ways that were really set in motion a year or two or even three years before. Um, mm -hmm. So these hop plants are just, you know, really doing well at the absolute wrong time. Um, and okay. so farmers have to are suddenly like you can just see week by week, the price just plummets and people have gone into debt to plant hops and they, you know, lose their shirts and have to decide, you know, do we hold on to these hops for a year, see if we can like sell them for a little bit more next year as yearlings, or do we just unload them now, even though they're worth almost nothing. Um, and then that is followed by a blight. So you have, you know, this competition with New York State, overproduction, and then eventually a blight. Oof. And then that was, and then that was it. That that was it for a lot of people um, and mm -hmm. a lot of farmers, but it takes a little while for the industry um, to really collapse, in part because um, people didn't immediately grub up all their hops. You know, there was some hope of a rebound. Um, and then diversified farmers keep, some, keep growing hops, um, it seems like, and or maybe skilled farmers. I'm not, you know, that's a little bit speculative, but there are farmers that absolutely keep growing hops, including this farmer and the family that is at the, the heart of my book. Um, the diary that I have is from the 18, early 1870s. So post crash, um, but they're still, you know, growing hops, still having pickers come and stay. And hop growing definitely continues in Wisconsin, you know, it, into the end of the 19th century, but gets eclipsed, you know, by New York. And then also this is obviously the time when the West Coast is really starting to uh, make a name for itself too. And so eventually New York is also becomes much less relevant. Yeah. When did, and when did the West Coast kind of start to pop off a little bit as far as hot production goes? Um, that's a good question. I don't have the stats in front of me mm -hmm. for like specific years, um, certainly, you know, California is already starting to try to grow hops in around this time period as well. Um, gotcha. And in extremely varied locations and with a totally different set of labor practices than what we see in Wisconsin. Much more heterogeneous labor force. Um, you know, Chinese men, Japanese men, Filipino men, Native American families and Anglo families. Um, or are doing a lot of the picking, kind of depending on where you are and when. And so it's very different. Um, and then 
you know, California has a real, like does really well in the later 19th century, even into the early 20th century. But the Pacific Northwest is, you know, Oregon gets going really early too. I, I would say, I think that Pacific Northwest dominance comes on then really early 20th century, but I could mm -hmm. be off by a decade or two just for not having the numbers in front of me. That's that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this shift uh, that you're describing of hot pickers kind of moving from women to men, um, but I'm noticing it's not shifting to white men. Uh, or not exclusively, you know. Not exclusively, often, okay. Often the white men are in a a group of, uh, like in a family group. Um, so in in Wheatland, in the 20th century, when you have the Wheatland Hop Riot, um, some of the people involved in that are definitely white male hop pickers. Um, so it's also to some extent about class too, obviously. We, sorry, we got to back up. What's the hop? Please tell us about the hop riot. <laughs> the the Wheatland hop riot um, uh, is part part of why I'm always struggle to tell the story of that is because the story of the Wheatland hop riot is really messy in both newspapers and court records. Um, so gotcha. um, the Wobblies were involved. Uh, there was you know in in this case this is nothing like uh, staying you know sleeping on a straw tick in the attic of a farmer in Wisconsin. Um, mm -hmm. Here, the people are living in a huge camp. It's dusty, you know, August in any uh, of the sort of central areas of California can be really hot, really dry. So they're in this dusty camp, not enough water, unsanitary conditions. Um, they have to, you know, provision themselves while to do this hot picking. And, you know, understandably, um, the Wobblies are interested in possibly organizing. And at a certain point, and again, like it's hard to tell in some ways what were the precipitating events, but there was a confrontation. Um, and in this confrontation, several people are shot and killed, um, mm -hmm. including I believe a sheriff's deputy. But even that, it's and even in the court proceedings, it's like, wait, who pulled the trigger? Like who, you know, what, who was the sort of culprit in this? Um, the Wobblies took the fall for it, um, and uh, or at least one did, and um, you know people were jailed for it. So, and I one of my students in my beer seminar um, did a project on it um, last semester, which was great and fascinating. And I was really proud of the fact that a major thing he took away from it was, "Wow, history is complicated," <laughs> and <laughs> that you know trying to bring together these conflicting sources to tell a story of this one event, you know, where even the eyewitnesses didn't agree on, on how it went down. So kind of a long answer to your question, but it it's one of the more violent moments in, in hot picking history. Goodness. So the, the book that you're working on now, um, do you have, and I know this is a painful question, but do you have like a rough idea of when you be releasing it or when it would be published? Um, I don't. It's I'm trying to finish it this year. Uh, and then mm -hmm. it's kind of up to the University of Chicago Press, of, you know, sort of how long uh, production takes. So I, I do have a contract for it already. So nice. um, yeah, yeah, it's a delight. So uh, we'll see. I, I 
really hope to to complete it all um, this year. You know, things were slowed down a little bit when I was department chair in a during a global pandemic, um, but I am no longer department chair and I have um, some time on the horizon to really, and even right now to really sink into writing a lot. So doing my best to wrap it up. Yeah, I, I, I will encourage listeners. Um, there's a really wonderful article that was published on Good Beer Hunting um, by Jennifer. And that I think it gives a really good um, in, a little snippet into um, her research around um, this rise and fall of the hop industry in Wisconsin. Um, so I would definitely, definitely encourage you all to, to check that out, I think, as a, as a nice little teaser for this book. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, this is, this is uh, something that I've always struggled with when you're talking about um, food cultures and research around food and beverage. Um, if listeners are interested in sinking their teeth into some really great historical um, books around beer, do you have any kind of go-to recommendations, kind of beginners first steps? <laughs> um, sure. I mean, there's, there really is a, a lot of amazing um, work out there. And I, I do think this is not a paid endorsement, but I think Good Beer Hunting <laughs> has been doing some really great work, uh, including, um, you know, Teresa McCullough and Brian Alberts and, and other people have done some really important work there, uh, um, kind of deepening our understanding of the history of, of beer in the United States in particular. Uh, I also think that William Bauer's work is really important. Um, he writes a lot about the Pomo uh, hop pickers in Northern California, uh, the Round Valley Reservation and, and other uh, indigenous groups who are very involved in the hop industry in the uh, 20th century in California. So I would definitely look, he has, there are both articles and books um, by him that uh, would definitely be of interest. Nice. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Teresa McCullough has been on the show a couple of times and she's absolutely brilliant. So um, definitely also uh, in any work or any podcast appearance by by her, definitely worth a check out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time. And I desperately want to do a part two because I want to talk about, I want to talk about these women. I'm fascinated by, by these, by these hot picking women, um, uh, especially in like the UK. I think that would be, that'd be fascinating. Um, but thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you so much. Well, listeners, this has been another episode of Beer Me Radio. Check us out anywhere you get podcasts, like, subscribe, give all the stars. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, reach out at Beer Me Radio on Instagram or beermeradio at gmail.com. We have found a new home at All About Beer. Uh, please check that site out. There are a lot of other podcasts. There's a lot of content and there's a lot of really rich information. So we will catch you next time. Cheers. <laughs>